I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As As Well, Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, so this is episode two um, of our travels from the Shire through Valinor. We read the next chunk of The Hobbit, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah, we had left off with Riddles of the Dark, and now we're starting with uh, the chapter Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, and going all the way through A Warm Welcome. I want to say, like before we get into the whole talking about the actual book, um, I feel like it was very unfortunate. Last week, we ended up watching the first Hobbit movie, which I don't think I've seen the first one of that trilogy. Mm-hmm. And it definitely colored my reading yeah. <laughs> of, of these chapters. Yeah, maybe like, that a was lot. a mistake to watch right before we were getting into this chunk. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that being said, perhaps we can talk a little bit about how the movie differs from from the the book and a little bit about what we think about that sure okay so out of the frying pan and into the fire pretty funny uh considering just the illusion of like a bad situation getting worse but also that chapter ends with a bunch of fire yeah i like how is it bilbo who says like escaping from goblins to be caught by wolves and then Mm -hmm. they say and then this is the origin of the proverb Um, yeah so i thought that was a fun little bit from the narrator yeah i really appreciate the wargs Mm -hmm. um i love i mean i i'm a big fan of like dark evil creatures in books Mm -hmm. um the wargs are really cool i like how uh, they are described as having this language that sounds just as terrible as the things that they're saying, and that even though Bilbo doesn't understand what they're saying, um, he he kind of gets the point. <laughs> he kind of gets the gist that yeah. these are nasty creatures yeah. discussing nasty things. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, and I think it's cool that uh, Gandalf understands what they're saying as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he's a very smart man. <laughs> I did think it was, a, a, you know, redundant, of course, not in a bad way, but in a like, this is clearly children's stories type of way that just like with the goblins, with the great goblin, there is a great warg, a bigger <laughs> wolf than all the other wolves who like is the one that they're listening to. Um, right. You know, it, it, it's just like I probably wouldn't have cared chapters and chapters away from the last one but since we just were with the great goblin and 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 stuff like that yeah i mean i think that's intentional because we do see this alliance though between the goblins and the wargs um which i wanted to talk a little bit about uh these evil creatures we've seen so far um first we saw the trolls and then we saw the goblins or orcs and now we're seeing these wargs and stuff and also we see the eagles later um and all these creatures that we see in the hobbit are descendants of the creatures of the Silmarillion in the First Age. For trolls, Treebeard says in the Two Towers that they were uh, bred in mockery of Ents in the same way that Mm. orcs were created as a corruption of elves and men. Trolls and goblins are these like old kind of uh, children of the old Dark Lord Morgoth, you could almost say. For the wargs, we have a connection actually to Sauron in the First Age in the Silmarillion. He was known not only as the Necromancer, but also the Lord of Wolves or the Lord of Werewolves. Uh, In the Silmarillion, werewolves are described as fell beasts inhabited by dreadful spirits that he, Sauron, had imprisoned in their bodies. So... Did you not have that bookmarked? I was looking at it. I knew the page number. And there's a lot of debate over whether 
wargs in Tolkien's world are interchangeable with his conception of werewolves, which are not men that turn into wolves, obviously, but kind of almost possessed wolves. Right, which is sort of what we see of the wargs. Like, they're more, you know, they're not just animals. Yeah, they're described as evil wolves, and Tolkien in one of his letters described wargs as demonic wolves. And so um, I think it's very interesting that you have... Uh, the trolls and the goblins, which are, like I said, kind of uh, descended from the old servants of Morgoth, and then the wargs, which are probably descendants of the old servants of Sauron. And Sauron, as we know, served the original Dark Lord Morgoth. So I find it interesting that, you know, the orcs have such a relationship with the wargs. But like you said, nowadays, like, they all just kind of follow a great chief. There's not any centralized leadership. The Dark Lord was overthrown. And Sauron is now the necromancer living in Mirkwood. We kind of now have these rogue agents still running about. Yeah, I really liked that uh, there was this clear connection between the goblins and the wargs. Because so far, the creatures that we've in- been introduced to, um, as far as like our kind of main characters, um, or the <laughs> the characters we're supposed to relate to, the dwarves, the elves, the hobbits, they seem pretty separate. You know, and maybe that's just because it's Bilbo's perspective and he's sheltered um, mm-hmm. within Hobbit life. But, you know, the the dwarves seem to keep pretty separate from the elves and the elves don't really seem to venture outside of their realms um, very much. So this is kind of the first time, at least in my perception of reading it, the first time that it's like, whoa, these guys are working together. Yeah, there's like an alliance there, definitely. Absolutely. Um, and honestly, like, I mean, let's be real. For me, coming from newer, modern, contemporary fantasy that has a lot of romantic plot lines, I love morally gray characters or people. So the structure that Tolkien pre- presents here is not one of my favorites, where it's like, there's this people and they are evil. And then there's sure, this people yeah. and they are all good. Not my favorite, but it is very classic. And like without that kind of structure, we would never have like the wonderful <laughs> number of morally gray characters or like questionable characters mm-hmm. that we do in, in modern literature. Yeah, sure. And I agree. Yeah, with your assessment of that. I do think Tolkien gets a bad rap for being so black and white good versus evil i think he has a lot of gray characters i think he just uses them sparingly i was actually gonna say the eagles are a perfect example of the type of character i love like they're not they're described as being not kindly or something like that and uh but they're just you know raptor birds who want to eat things that's how they're described in this chapter i saw you make that face i know that they're they are part of a bigger scheme Oh, yeah, they are good. They are wholly pretty well, good. Well, they... Uh, yeah, it sounds like these eagles do kind of have some issues with men. Like, they uh, they take some of their... What do they say? Like, their sheep? It just sometimes. doesn't sound like there's, like, a yeah. lot of, like... That the, their, like, morality doesn't enter into the qua- the equation of what they're doing. Other than the yeah. fact that they hate the goblins and they hate the wargs. But mm. they themselves are not, like, kindly beasts who would get along with people. Yeah, and I mean, as we know about the eagles in Lord of the Rings, they tend to stay out of things un- until very specific moments. Um, and there's a reason for that, but we'll get to that maybe near the end of this book. But let's stick to what, what they are in this, which is yeah. like very simply giant birds. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I like. I mm-hmm. like I like how they're described. They're, they are the morally gray characters of this scene. 
Um, I think the Molotov pine cone shit is awesome. I am very oh, into it's, it. It's pretty sweet. That's like a, a great idea. I'd love to try it, actually. I mean, don't try it at home. With certain pine cones, you would find that they, they have plenty enough oil in them to light up like that um, and smell good while while you're doing it. So uh, don't start any forest fires, but... If you happen to run across some goblins and wargs in the woods, you know, like, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you have to <laughs> maybe try a little fire magic. I do want to address the aspect of this chapter that is so different from the movie to me, which is the tone of the emotions between Bilbo and the band of dwarves, specifically Thorin. Um, in the movie, we, of course, get this very like dramatic connection where Bilbo realizes that Thorin doesn't want him around. He thinks he's troublesome and Bilbo gets all upset about it. And he's like, I guess I don't belong here. So he like wanders off on his own while they're in the goblin cave. Then when he comes back, it's this big like, oh my God, you deserve to be here. And it's this very, it's so overwrought compared to what it is in the book, which is just like, oh, that meddlesome hobbit. Oh, he's here. <laughs> like, they all thought he died and then he showed up. They're like, oh, I guess you're not useless. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, and I honestly, as much as I am here to ship, um, come on. Like, I'm just going to be clear. I'm not too into the shipping period. <laughs> no, but, I get it. But if yeah. we're going to ship Bilbo with anyone, I'm, I'm going to go with no, Gandalf. And, and like, I mean, I'm a big fan of shipping, but I honestly don't pick up on that potential anywhere in this book it is so dry and maybe that's why people do it so much i mean i i went deep into some archive of our own anything related to the hobbit stuff and i mean there's all sorts of stuff and i think that's awesome but it is it's super creative because the text itself is like just as basic as you can tell a story it doesn't leave a whole lot to uh and for romantic things happening at right all, not yeah. i mean like i guess there's an empty space so pe- that's what allows people to exactly. to yeah. fill it with that but um not much more you know no mm. offense to anyone who's a big shipper <laughs> of hobbits um but yeah I, I think you know if if you are going on this experience with us and you've only ever watched the hobbit movies and never read the book you might be confused at the lack of torrid emotions between Bilbo and the rest of the characters because it is a huge difference to me. Yeah, definitely. So moving on to chapter seven, Queer Lodgings. I love Bayorn. Oh, does my God. What a fucking icon. He's fucking cool, man. Okay. First of all, like he's just out there living off of honey and cream. That is awesome. Like, that's the life. I I I just I think he's cool. At one point they come out of his house and just see a warg skin that he just like a warg that he captured and I think tortured for information. Yeah, I think they say that he asked them some questions. Yeah. I think we can infer <laughs> and then there's they, some violence. Yeah, he involved. he talks about like capturing a warg and how he, he asked them and questions a and a goblin and asked them questions about what was going on. And then the next thing we see is the, the hobbits and the dwarves walk outside of Bayorn's house. And they're like, what'd you do with him? He's like, and come and see. And there's like a warg skin up on the tree. And I'm like, yeah. Basically saying to everyone else, like, 
fuck off. Yeah. Don't come near here. Yeah. There's there's sort of a uh like a line he writes where it's like, yes, Bayarn was a, a mighty foe indeed, or something like but that. But he was on our side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um I so I, I really think he's a, a total badass. Tolkien is clearly obsessed with not just storytelling as an action that he does but obsessively telling other people about the storytelling that his characters are capable of. Um, to me, there's something very like English about it. And maybe that's just because I'm an American, but like he seems to like obsess over these gentlemanly things, like telling riddles, sitting around and smoking pipe tobacco. And mm-hmm. like when Gandalf is telling Bayorn the story, Bilbo's realizing that Gandalf is telling Bayorn the story in a certain way with having each of, you know, each set of the dwarves come in to interrupt in order to make Bayorn more interested in the story. Yeah. And like stay listening. Mm-hmm. And that it's this huge plot and like manipulation on Gandalf's part that that's how it happens. And that Bayorn, yeah. despite his better nature, is like sucked into the story that oh, they yeah. just went into. Because they keep changing the facts of the numbers of how many people are with him. And he's like, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. And right, right. So, because I think if Gandalf showed up with 13 dwarves and a hobbit, Bayorn would tell them to go somewhere. Like, right. He's like, you can't come here. Um, so, you know, like Bilbo said, it was a very clever way of Gandalf to kind of get Bayorn to. And it reminds me a lot of chapter one and mm-hmm. how the dwarves pop by Bilbo's house kind yeah. of like in ones and twos and stuff and he's just kind of like flustered but kind of like wait what's going on and, right right he's know. like pulled into it because and of how exactly. overwhelming it is um yeah so i i just think that's like a very unique thing about his writing that i i didn't ever know about before was just like he's so very focused on like how people communicate in his stories mm. um and that that's like a specific not just a thematic element, but it like a, it, in this story, in this chapter, it's like a plot yeah. aspect. Yeah, it's a neat observation. One thing I always think about with Bayorn, like we've talked about all these creatures, um, trolls, goblins, we'll get into spiders and, you know, whatnot. And there seem to be a lot of these creatures or at one point, you know, like so, like in the case with the dragon, like there, you know, were once dragons everywhere. Um but two characters really stand out to me, and that's Gollum and Bayorn. And, you know, in the last one, we talked about how Gollum doesn't really fit into any of these categories, and he's kind of just this weirdo. And later we'll find out, you know, Tolkien will revise his origin to be that he was a halfling, a hobbit. But at the time when he wrote it, you know, they're really what he was just this Grindel like creature in, you know, the lake. And similarly with Bayorn, you know, he seems to be the last of his people, descended from the old bears. Yeah, yeah, or <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> um, and well, at one point they also say the old, the first men mm, that lived mm-hmm. in the mountains, which I think there's a very interesting, there has to be some sort of link. I don't know what it is, but one of the first men that comes into the west of Middle Earth in the Silmarillion's name was Beor. Okay. Beor the Old. And... So I don't know if there's any link there or not, but um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they the are, names they are, are, are like pretty similar. Not that that means anything when it comes to the Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the fact that he is a skin changer. He turns into a bear. 
And really the only, you know, we talked about how werewolves in this world are not men that change into wolves. Right. However, there is one instance of that happening, and it is of a descendant of Bayor. His name is Baron. He's a very famous hero of this world. And at one point, he actually takes a werewolf or warg skin, and through some elf magic, he is actually turned into a wolf creature. Mm. So I always found that kind of interesting that Bayorn's name sounds so much like Bayor, and mm-hmm. Baron was of the house of Bayor, and he's the only other skin changer we have in the legendary. Interesting. Really. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a link there somewhere, but I'm just not sure what it is. But I kind of like the mystery of not knowing a lot about these skin changers, these, you know, bear men of the mountains. Right. Um, again, I think this is another thing that Tolkien kind of borrowed from a lot of like Norse and Viking mythology, kind of like the berserker. I think that actually comes from the word bear. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's like a, a Viking association with Bayorn. Yeah. And and from all indication we get from this character in this chapter is that he has stayed away from most of society, you know? So of course we wouldn't know very much about it, right? Like if we're, especially if we're only learning about these like big monumental shifts like what happens in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, why would we hear about all of these creatures who have, have like already kind of sucked themselves away from society, the shared world? Yeah, Tolkien has this habit of only sort of talking about, you know, the things that are deemed important to the story. And he'll say a lot of times, and that is told elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, but this tale doesn't, you know, touch on that. Um, something like that. So I think this is an instance where like the skin changers as a race don't really have much impact on the story. Bayorn as a character does, but not necessarily the people. So we are only told as much as we really need to know. Yeah. Well, we, we learn from Bayorn that the goblins and the wargs have things in store and they are hot on the trail and that pushes our characters forward. They can't just like stay around. Yeah, I mean, the goblins are and the wargs are all pretty pissed. So they, they got to get on with their journey and yep. uh, get on to the Lonely Mountain, which takes us to our next chapter, Flies and Spiders. Yes. So we get a nice look at Mirkwood, which is a creepy, creepy forest. Yeah, I dig it. Very cool. Very. I love how confused they are when they're in it. While traveling through Mirkwood, they encounter some pretty nasty spiders. Yes. Yeah, I love the giant spiders. You know, I think I think they're spooky <laughs> and I mean, scary. Yeah, um, they're giant spiders and terrifying. And so it's it, it just feels very uh, like a big chase through the woods of of the dwarves and the hobbits trying to get food from the elves and then not succeeding at that, and then the spiders eventually trying to eat them. Mm-hmm. And we really get, I think, the most development for Bilbo. We talked about how the ring was sort of a turning point for him, getting that in Gollum's cave. And now we're really starting to see the fruits of that. Right. He is getting a lot more confident. Uh, he's using the ring and now Sting. Mm-hmm. He's killing things for the first time. Right. Saving people. So yeah, this is where I, the chapter that I always see Bilbo's courage really, really start to shine through. And I feel like this one flows, whereas... All of the chapters before this are like, here's a chapter and like a singular story within it. 
um, between this chapter and the next chapter, it really flows directly into it. You know, they they are captured by the spiders, and then the next scene, they're still with the spiders. Yeah, I would say this is where we kind of reach a turning point in the story where it's not so much these kind of uh, self-contained little chapters, these little adventures. Yeah, we've like entered into the epic story. Yeah, yeah. And from here on out, it kind of, these chapters sort of all bleed into the next the next phase of the story right i know it's like kind of jumping uh back and forth but i did want to give a little bit of the origin of the spiders because i think it's pretty cool and i think we can see a little bit of some of these elements like the uh the darkness of murkwood and especially how these a lot of these spider webs kind of seem to strangle out a lot of the light the all these spiders whether it's the spiders of murkwood or shelob that we see in the lord of the rings that sam and frodo face are all descended from this creature called Ungoliant. Mm, icon. She truly is an icon. And I just wanted to read a few passages from the Silmarillion that kind of explain a little bit about her. Beneath the sheer walls of the mountains and the cold dark sea, the shadows were deepest and thickest in the world. And there in Avatar, secret and unknown, Ungoliant had made her abode. The Eldar knew not whence she came, but some have said that in ages long before she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda. And then another passage reads, In a ravine she lived, and took shape as a spider of monstrous form, weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountains. There she sucked up all light that she could find, and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom, until no light more could come to her abode, and she was famished. I love it. Yeah, so she's just kind of like this horror-like creature, and Tolkien draws a lot from Norse mythology, Finnish, Welsh mythology, but this is um, something that he really kind of almost takes from Lovecraft. She's really this Lovecraftian, not a spider, but a spider-like creature. <laughs> she takes a spider-like form uh, who descended into our world in ancient times. And, you know, Tolkien has a classification for almost all creatures in this world, but not really her. She's just this unknown. It's so interesting, too, because, I mean... Of all of the creatures, not not to say that I don't read books that end up having dwarves or elves or, you know, something similar to them, but so many of my favorite books in middle grade fantasy, YA fantasy, and adult fantasy have spider characters that are, are very similar. Like, I don't think I've ever come across a spider character who's very good. Uh, you know, like a nice guy. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the most neutral we get is like Aragog in Harry Potter. Um, yeah, and even he's kind of morally questionable. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, he's like just basically ready to eat anyone who shows up on his doorstep. In Tamara Pierce, there are these things called Spidrin, which are giant spiders with the faces of children. Um, That's per- really disturbing. Yeah, particularly scary. They have like very, um, they're the web that they shoot out like is painful like glows and um can suffocate you just a lot of (laughs) spooky stuff with that um in sarah j mass's throne of glass series um there are giant spiders who are in fact like descended from this alien demon race i mean they're they're from a different dimension um but they are technically demons as I would say, Ungoliant. Yeah. I, I would describe her as an alien spider demon. Yeah. <laughs> which is weird to say in Tolkien's world. But right. This is where these great evil spiders right. came from. And also, I want to say, like, this isn't where spiders came from. 
Ungolian actually then mates with real spiders. With real spiders. And then creates gotcha. this race. Gotcha. And I, you know, I think why this is such a, a enduring type of monster, we have spiders. And whether you like spiders or not, like you cannot deny that they are so strange. Oh, like, absolutely. I love looking at like Google images. I like spiders. I love looking at Google images of like close up on spiders' faces and like, what? Like, wh- how? Yeah. <laughs> there's so many eyes, there's so many legs, they're hairy, they're just so odd. Um, and beautiful, you know, I think, in in my personal opinion, I think they're just like absolutely a marvel of nature. Yeah, I mean, you, you can you can think they're beautiful. <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, something I think is pretty interesting about this is I believe when Tolkien was a child living in South Africa, he had an experience with like a tarantula or okay. something. Um, and that may have may or may not have shaped yeah. some of his ideas of spiders. Yeah. But um And it's funny now like I I was just thinking in the age of internet, you know, more and more people are like having spiders as pets. Um and I was like watching a TikTok where this girl has like a pet jumping spider and it's like pouting at her and like asking for pets basically like the way a cat would. But it's like a tiny little cat with eight legs and eight eyes. No, it's not like a little cat. I to me it was like a cat. Okay. Um but we see them um, take the dwarves, wrap them up, and that's kind of where the next chapter comes in, which is called... Barrels Out of Bond. Um, so we start this chapter still with the spiders, but Bilbo rescues them with Sting. Which I kind of wanted to note, you know, as we know, Sting came from the ancient city of Gondolin. Uh-huh. And Ungoliant's children actually resided in the hills surrounding... Uh, Gondolin. Gotcha. So these blades were presumably used to, to kill, kill off spiders. these evil spiders. So it's very fitting that Bilbo is doing that again ages later. And yeah. Also, Sam fighting Shelob with right. Him and as well. is this where we get the name Sting? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, because uh, of what the the spiders shout out um, as he's saving mm-hmm. the dwarves. Yeah. yeah. Maybe less dramatic than out of the frying pan into the fire, but we still have another moment of, like, they're free only to get captured again, this time by the elves. Yes, the wood elves. The wood elves. <laughs> which are different from the, yeah. the high elves that we... Pretty clearly yeah. different. Um, they're much more territorial, a lot less, you know, welcoming. Yeah. Pretty pretty xenophobic. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we meet uh, Thranduil. The king. Well, he's not named Thranduil yet. He's just the elven king. But yes. But yes, the elven king um, who really likes wine. I think that's a really funny part of this is that like the elves, they love their wine. Yeah. <laughs> it's Must like all they care about. potent shit to get the elves that messed I, up. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. So I, I actually really love this chapter because it's, again, we see Bilbo on his own and... This time, he he doesn't cower, but he immediately snaps into, like, survival mode, burglaring, taking food when he can. He's ringing, He's wearing the ring constantly. Yeah, he's starting to get good at being a burglar. Yeah, it's um, kind of amazing. It's, like, the best training he could get for, yeah. for the uh, mission he's on. He may not have been a burglar when Gandalf chose him, but, you know, he's certainly evolved into that. Yeah. Um, I think Gandalf knew that would 
somewhere along the would way happen happen yeah all of the dwarves are taken to separate cells and it sounds like thorin has been there thorin was captured by the elves earlier earlier when they came across the wood elves and then you know the fire went out um that's when i think they had taken thorin right and i don't even know if it was clear then until later but then we see thorin being brought before the elven king right um and he's in the deepest darkest you know cell of the elves prison it's said that he was like about to give up he was like hours and days away from revealing his entire you know plot to the elven king so that he can he'll have to give up part of the treasure most likely but at least he could get help <laughs> help yeah. out of there but he holds off because bilbo shows up and has a conversation with him about how they're going to get out the elves do not take kindly to dwarves at all like beyond just oh there's someone in the in our part of the forest and that's not allowed yeah and it's more specifically the wood elves have an issue with dwarves because in the first age and during the Silmarillion, the wood elf king at the time had in his possession one of these magic Silmarils. And then there was this dwarven necklace that he had that he asked some dwarves to fashion the Silmaril into the necklace. This causes a lot of greed on both sides. The dwarves claim that the necklace originally came from them, so therefore they should have it. And... The elven king there basically says no. And he actually gets a little racist and calls them like some stunted people or something. And they get really pissed and they kill him. Nice. <laughs> and so eventually a lot of these dwarves are killed. But there were two main tribes of dwarves in the Silmarillion. And Thorin's family comes from the one that was not at all involved in this. <laughs> so it's just xenophobia. like Pretty much. It's just, just this. And bias. Thranduil was part of that. Uh, he was kin to that king mm. and part of that court. So he's definitely holding over a lot of these bitter memories gotcha. of this feud over this necklace. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I mean... It is sort of like, given how well-received they are in Rivendell, when it's like, ah, yeah, we'll read your moon map. <laughs> Let's have fun. You know, and then they show up here. I mean, they don't even show up here. They're just crossing through his woods. And they're like, are we not allowed to be in yeah, the woods? Yeah, he's like, what did you? What were you doing attacking my people? And they're like, we weren't attacking you. He's like, yeah, you woke up the spiders and you're in my woods. And they're like is that really a problem? Like the spiders were chasing us and we're just in the woods. And he's like, yes, that is a problem. Yeah. A little, little aggy. And maybe he's just a little uptight because the necromancer is starting to bop around again and things yeah. are getting kind of darker. Things in are getting worse. Cause um, like the necromancer is in Southern Mirkwood. Yeah. And so the more powerful he's getting, the more evil Mirkwood is getting. Right. So that's definitely playing into all this as well. This is another area in which I'll say that watching the Hobbit movie um, before this i guess we were watching the second part at this point um was the second movie yeah the second hobbit movie was not a good idea um simply because they implant an entire romance and the fact that legolas exists in this you know it, it's just it throws a lot of things out of whack um for like me picturing it as a as a first time reader where i remember what i'm reading yeah, I have a lot of my own issues with Legolas. Uh, I could probably dedicate a whole podcast episode <laughs> yeah. to uh, yeah. Again, my, my I... issues with Legolas and his portrayal and uh, his overuse. Yeah, I, I think we'll have to do separate episodes about the movies and, and just our yeah. 
uh, various grievances. And, you know, not that it's all negative, although I'm a very negative You're movie watcher. I'm a hater. Yeah. Um, but Own it. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, we'll have to do that some other time because that that's like way too much to get into. And um, it's better to talk about what actually happens in the book, uh, which is that Bilbo and Thorin devise a plan. It eventually leads to them hiding in barrels to get transported to Lake Town. And it's a great I love that. I, I love the whole situation. I love that even though this is like their only means of escape, the dwarves are like bitching about having to get into these barrels and like they're freaking out about it it's, yeah, it's pretty comical yeah it's pretty comical and bill was like well do you want to get out or not yeah. and then they shut up yeah um we're getting at a point in the story where i originally like am more annoyed with bilbo and kind of more on the dwarf side <laughs> and now we're getting more into like i get more annoyed with the dwarves yeah because they just want bilbo to rescue them but then they don't like how he's doing it and he's being pretty reasonable right and they're really not yeah um and they escape they escape because of the drunk elves so that was funny too yeah you know getting to see the elves kind of be made idiots well one thing i wanted to bring up from here i was just thinking about how we talked about how a lot of these races are not very connected in this world and you know the orcs and the wargs kind of have this alliance but i also did want to point out that through the barrels it seems like there is commerce and trade between the woodland elf kingdom and lake town which is men yeah it seems pretty common which i think is pretty that's pretty interesting yeah definitely and there's definitely kind of some complaints about tolls and uh we don't really get a whole lot of like economic (laughs) things in the rest of tolkien's work right but this is the most we see and it's, it's just pretty interesting yeah i um i i do appreciate that kind of like real world grounding of this part. And I think it's funny that it's happening right when we're introduced to like the first human society that we're seeing mm-hmm. in the series so far. Yeah, I didn't have many feelings about about the final chapter. A warm welcome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they basically show up to Lake Town at this point and they're all tired and uh, starving and half freezing <laughs> and then they just pretty much like roll up and Thorin's like, hey, the king under the mountains returned. It's me, Thorin. And we get kind of a look at, you know, the master of Lake Town. He was kind of a, a just a money counting, you know, kind mm-hmm. of miser. And he's kind of like seems to go with whichever way the wind's blowing. Right. The people. And so when the people kind of start to like be all happy about, oh, the dwarves have returned, then he's like, well, I don't believe they're actually the dwarves of Erebor, but uh, if it's good for me to like go along with it and have these honored guests here, let me go along with that. Uh, so I, I think the master is kind of a, a funny character, even if he's not in it that much. And also something I wanted to point out here, we see the beginnings of something that I think will be important later on. One is kind of the the people of Lake Town and their expectation of the wealth that mm-hmm. they will share. And also we see Thorin also start to kind of get a little proud, a little haughty. Like it says here, once, you know, they're obviously healed of their, uh, all their ailments from riding in (laughs) barrels uh, and, you know, they're fed, they're cleaned up, whatever. It says Thorin looked and walked as if his kingdom was already regained and Smaug chopped up into little pieces. (laughs) Yeah. And so we'll see We'll see Thorin later, you know, once they go up to the mountain and stuff. Once he's kind of back home in his element, 
he really starts to change and really starts to become a much more unlikable character. Mm, yeah. And this is something foreshadowed too. Like, I think they're already at that point when they're in prison at the elves where um, they're worried about having to share any of their riches. And it's noted, like they say their riches as if it was all completed. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of getting a little bit ahead of themselves. Right. And then, you know, as we'll see later, there are issues around this hoard of gold. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. So that about wraps it up for chapters 6 through 10. We will be going on to chapters 11 through 16 next. And that is from On the Doorstep to The Gathering of the Clouds. And that's really going to kind of set the the final stage for the big finale. But we get a lot of uh, Smaug stuff next week. I'm very excited for that. And yeah. also, you know, if, if you are a... Um, if you feel like you're dragging yourself through these books, the next chapters are actually shorter um, than the ones we just went through. We, I think we just went through the hardiest set of chapters. But you can find my reading journal on our website, halfaswellpodcast.com, where we also post our podcast and updates with the Hall of Fire blog. You can also follow us on Twitter at halfaswellpod. And we try to post every day on that, um, at least. So if you like uh, Tolkien memes and just other stuff, that's a great place to be. If you're currently listening to this and you'd like to hear sort of a watch with me take on on any of the Lord of the Rings movies, let us know. That's something we kind of have in the works, but we're not sure what the appetite for that is. If you're into that, let us know. Could be pretty fun. Could be pretty fun. Um, but other than that, I guess we'll just see you next week. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, Half as, as Well. well.